This episode is brought to you by BarkBox. For a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com astronomy when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. AstronomyCast, episode 521, The Deep Space Network. Welcome to AstronomyCast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. Uh, sorry to everyone, we are recording this episode live at a different time, and that's because I wasn't here on Friday, and that's because I was in Costa Rica with uh, my good friend Dr. Paul Sutter on our next Astro Tour. I'm not even going to remember which number this is now. I think it's number four, um, but uh, this was amazing. We were in Costa Rica. We got a chance to see the Arenal volcano, got to do river cruises, lake cruises, uh, well, one of each. So not is, um, and uh, but probably the uh, we saw uh, like many different kinds of monkeys. Uh, probably my my highlight was the hummingbird uh, forest or hummingbird reserve where they had set up like I don't know forty hummingbird feeders. And there was probably a hundred hummingbirds, like ten different kinds of hummingbirds in the uh, up in the cloud forest. It was absolutely uh, amazing. We had a great time. Thanks everyone who joined us, um, and we recorded an episode all about uh, dust which I think is a topic we haven't covered too much. So dust and and how that led to the uh, the BICEP2 results being overturned. So it's sort of a fascinating story. And Paul was on the, the Plunk team that helped overturn the results. So he had an inside scoop on the whole story. So uh, we're going to put this in as a bonus episode at some point this uh, this week or early next week. So uh, all right, Pamela, I don't know if you had anything to say. Should we just go right into the I... show? Well, I mean, if you want to join us on future Astro Tours, uh, check out astrotours.co. And um, you can join me in the future. I'm going to be going along with Fraser. And we are going to be doing in June a Joshua Tree uh, National Park trip. This is the All-Stars trip with us, Paul Matt Sutter, uh, John Gautier, Skylius. Uh, it's kind of gonna be amazing so if you looked before at the price and went oh no can't well look again because the prices went down and we're really hoping that you can join us out under the dark skies yeah so the price has been reduced um so go back to astrotours.co and then just go to the all-stars party and then you'll see the new price um the reservation date has been pushed back a couple of weeks so you still got a couple more weeks to make a decision on that so definitely go and uh, and check that out uh all right let's get into the show so we always focus on the missions but there is an important glue that holds the whole system together the deep space network today we're going to talk about how the system works and how it communicates with all the spacecraft out there in the solar system all right, Pamela, it is it is a big oversight. I think it's not just I mean, I've, I know some people will spend some time talking about the deep space network, but I don't think people really think about how we are getting all of this data from all of these missions back on Earth uh, at different distances. Some of them are in different locations. What is the mechanism? And that's the deep space network. So what is it? It is three different sites on the planet Earth that are distributed 
from east to west here in the United States, out in Goldstone in California, or near Goldstone. Goldstone is actually a ghost town that now I really want to go to after prepping for this show. Uh, outside of Canberra in Australia and outside of Madrid in Spain. These three different locations, the way they're spread out from east to west, mean that once you're located high enough above the planet Earth, you are always within sight of one of these three facilities, each of which is built kind of within a natural bowl in a valley between various mountains. This protects the telescopes from all the radio noise that you can get here on the surface of the planet, allowing them to focus on everything out there somewhere. All right, so you've got three facilities at essentially three different portions on the globe so that at least, you know, two or one is always being able to see the entire sky so that all spacecraft can always be communicated with. What are the actual facilities like? What what are they? Well, they, they are each a set of different telescopes. This is one of the things that I think gets missed in the story a lot. It's not like there is the Goldstone telescope. Well, there is the Goldstone, but Deep Space Network at Goldstone is actually a suite of a bunch of different telescopes. Madrid is a suite of a bunch of different telescopes. And each of these different facilities has one 34-meter telescope, has two or more... Um, so, so let me start that over. Each of these facilities has one 34-meter high-efficiency antenna. So this is the, hey, I got you. We're listening close right now. There's also two or more 34-meter beam waveguide antennas. Uh, there's some 26-meter dishes and one 70-meter antenna per facility. And it's these 70 meters that we're used to seeing in the pictures. They're big, they're dramatic. Uh, Goldstone, in addition to being used to receive sound, is also used to, well, it's also a radar dish. And so there is the occasional death to things like bees when they're igniting the radar on it to not just well, catch the radar signals, but measure precisely where all of this stuff is in space. So so at each facility, there is the collection of telescopes. And the big one is the 70-meter telescope, and then there are these other ones as well. And people always make this joke to me when, uh, when, when we talk about how we're able to still communicate with the Voyagers and New Horizons, and they're so far away. You know, oh, we can communicate with a satellite that's billions of kilometers away, but I can't receive a cell phone signal. If you were willing to carry a 70-meter telescope in your pocket, you would always be able to get a cell phone signal. That and would be no problem. Unless you were, of course, one of these 70-meter telescopes because they're in radio quiet zones. So I, there's, there's a certain irony. The, the way they're set up, they are good for everything that is 30,000 kilometers and higher above the surface of the Earth, but you start getting lower down and the shape of the planet, the mountains that surround them, all of these different things serve to isolate them from signals. So this is where the deep space in the deep space network comes from is, well, you have to be high enough above the surface of the planet to make sure you're always within sight of one of these different dishes. 
Today was BarkBox Day in our house, that one special day a month when the dogs get to open their box of goodies. And by goodies, I mean high-quality toys that survive laundry trip after laundry trip. Dog treats made here in the U.S. and in Canada out of all-natural ingredients and never out of soy, corn, or wheat. And of course, amazing packaging that keeps this human amused. These boxes are an amazing value with more than $40 of toys and treats for just $20 a month with our subscription. One of my favorite parts of each box is that they're themed with my favorite box containing a stuffed dragon and a squirrel dressed up as a medieval knight. This is a 100% happiness guaranteed box of win that they will replace for free. No questions asked if your dog doesn't love something. So go get a bark box. You won't regret it. This episode, once again, was brought to you by BarkBox. For a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com astronomy when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. And be happy just like me, Eddie, and Stella. All right. And so then how does like operationally, how does this actually work? It's all controlled out of the Jet Propulsion Lab out in Pasadena, California. This is a NASA facility that is owned and operated by Caltech. It actually had its roots as an Air Force facility back before 1958, got transferred over to NASA with the beginning of, well, Mercury and all of those humans going into space. And it was set up as as a way to get signals back from the Mariner missions, to get signals back from all of these early missions in the 1950s. Now, with Explorer, it wasn't all that um, formalized. It was more a matter of we're going to send these facilities out. We're going to have mobile radio receivers out in places like middle of nowhere, Nigeria. Um, Nigeria isn't in the middle of nowhere, but where they went sure was. And this combination of distributing human beings around the world with radio dishes meant that we could distribute spacecraft around the solar system and get the signals back to Earth. Unfortunately, planetary rotation does mean you have to distribute things around. And as we launched more and more facilities, it became clear that we needed to have a permanent facility here on the planet Earth dedicated to listening to what was going on out there. Now, in the 1960s, when this was really starting to pick up steam, we had the 1966 version of this, which included Goldstone, which has always been included in the network. Then we also had Woomera, Australia, Canterbury, Australia, where we still have locations. At that point, we included Johannesburg, South Africa, as well as Madrid, Spain. And then, of course, we had launch support out of Cape Canaveral and the Ascension Islands. Over the years, the facilities have become fewer in number, but uh, more and more important in what they're able to do. And they've added more and more dishes that increase their, their capacity. And at this point, we are in the numbers in the 60s, where they have numbered each successive dish as they have continued to upgrade the systems at the various locations. And so out in Goldstone, we have numbers 11 through 14. 
uh, in 74. But today, if you go to Deep Space Network now, you're going to find, well, those numbers aren't entirely the same as dishes have been replaced and upgraded. Yeah, if you actually go, I mean, this is one of the best things that you can do. Go to, uh, it's eyes.nasa.gov slash DSN, and then go to the Deep Space Network now. And so just just as an example, at the time that we're recording right now, um, out at Madrid, there the the big dish is talking to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and the, the, third, the next dish is also talking to MRO, and then one is talking to ACE. I'm not sure which that is, the Advanced Composition Explorer, and then the other one is talking to OSIRIS-REx. Out of Goldstone, one is talking to Stereo A, uh, another is talking to the Geotail, one is talking to Juno, and one is talking to Hayabusa 2. Canberra, the big telescope is offline right now, but the other one of them is talking to Voyager 2, one is talking to Juno, and the other is talking to Voyager 2. So you can just see... You go to go to Deep Space Network now, and you can see exactly who is who is talking to which dishes are talking to which spacecraft. How long it takes for the information to get, and this is what I love. Like for example, Voyager two, it takes one point three nine days for the light to get to and from Voyager two because of its distance into the solar system. Just an amazing uh, sort of, and you know technical accomplishment and you can see why it's you know it's it's the amount of data they can get is is so low because they're so far and as we're starting to get more and more of these small space probes out at greater and greater distances some of which count as no longer in our solar system we're also having to expand how the network works and one of the things that they're working on doing now is increasing the the way the dishes work so they can array them together and get multiple individual dishes uh, working as an array to all listen in on the same signal. And this ability to combine dishes has been used before. There were issues with the Galileo probe when it was out at Jupiter where it just didn't have a high gain antenna that worked the way it was supposed to. And so they had to use, well, more resources than were originally planned to get what data they could back down to Earth. And at various points throughout history, when there have been issues with spacecraft, they've combined multiple telescopes, they've brought in additional telescopes, sometimes using the Parkes Telescope in Australia, so that they can catch these weaker signals to rescue spacecraft that just might need an extra hand up. Now, I mean, radio waves are one of those f- few wavelengths where you can actually quite easily in real time or even after the fact combine the 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 data signals together. So are they using like interferometry they, to they actually com- to combine the, the signals? Yeah. And so that, you know, and I'm sure many of these dishes were brought in for the Event Horizon Telescope where they turned the entire planet into one big telescope to be able to observe the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. So that's, I, I didn't know that they, they use that, that method to be able to get some of those weaker signals as necessary. That's really and, interesting. And what's interesting is there, there are a lot of assumptions that get made about how these different telescopes get used and where they do and don't get used. I, I've heard quite often, and I suspect we've even screwed up and said it before here on this show, that Arecibo gets used as part of the Deep Space Network, and it does not. 
the the deep space network is specifically these Goldstone, Madrid, and Canberra facilities. And where the confusion comes in is Goldstone has other dishes that are used for other things. It uses its large dish also for radar work. And Goldstone and Arecibo work together as radar facilities to help us measure asteroids and other objects as needed. And there's a few other radar dishes out there. Haystack Observatory in Massachusetts. There's facilities out in the UK. So we have other radar dishes around the world. But it's this combination of Arecibo and Goldstone are two of our main radar dishes. And Goldstone is also part of the deep space network that leads to some of these confusions. Uh, in general, this is a facility that is quite happy to sit there going, we shall listen to spacecraft and leave science to all those other dishes out there. And so I can sort of imagine that that in some cases, like all the spacecraft are out there and they are waiting to, you know, they're gathering up all of their science and then they're waiting for their turn to transmit the signals home. And so we would probably get more science from the spacecraft if we had more facilities. Like, is it, is it like this, you know, the more missions you have, the more capacity you need in the network? Are one of these behind one of the other? With, with the spaceflight operations facility that they've built out at JPL, they do a lot of queue systems where they're like, okay, so this spacecraft is here in this orbit. It will be visible to the Earth at this point, so we schedule it now. And so there's a lot of careful choreography that goes into getting signals back to Earth. We also are starting to find that radar systems, not radar systems, radio systems are cheap enough to build and are efficient enough to build that some places like the Advanced Physics Laboratory out on the East Coast at Johns Hopkins University, uh, they're in some cases building their own receivers. We, we also see that some of the um, European Space Agency facilities have their own radio receivers. And with the ability of smaller institutions to get all of their data down for themselves, it's this balancing of, yes, the deep space network does need to build more telescopes that it can use to receive the signals from these distant space probes. But at the same time, some of these space probes can also just send their messages straight back to their principal investigators institution. And the deep space network isn't for all the low Earth orbit stuff. It's only for the more distant objects and and that frees up the network as well when it doesn't have to listen to things like discover as it well discovers our own planet earth uh so i mean do you think that i mean we're at a point where like b bigger telescopes are going to be necessary more telescopes or you know, do you feel like we're at a point where, I mean, it's interesting to see how like the Europeans have their own version of this. You know, I'm sure the Russians have their ability to communicate with all of their spacecraft. And yet when need needed, I know you get these, sometimes you'll see this in press releases where, you know, some really interesting thing is happening at a time when say the European network isn't going to be able to see it. And so NASA will pitch in. As I mentioned right now, 
the Deep Space Network is observing the Hayabusa mission. So you can see that, that they're, they're getting involved. So, I mean, do we see this collaboration between the different nations coming together to be able to help each other out as scientists? There, there, there is definitely a great deal of collaboration that goes on. This is part of the treaties in many cases between the different nations where uh, there, there are trades for getting instruments to fly in spacecrafts, getting time on the deep space network, getting data. All of these different things can be traded with no-cost agreements where the U.S. will provide something that they pay for on their side and get something that isn't money in exchange that has real value for us. So when we look to missions like Hayabusa, yes, they they totally use the deep space network. Space IL is going to be using the deep space network with their little Bereshit lander when it gets to the moon. And all of these different agreements work together to get more science done. Now, one of the interesting things to me in terms of how do we choose to expand the deep space network to meet the coming needs of the future? We have two things happening simultaneously. One is the miniaturization of the transmitters that are going on spacecraft, where we're capable to more effectively send back signals than we could in the past, and we can send back tighter signals than we could in the earliest spacecraft. And on the Earth, that same miniaturization is making our systems more and more sensitive. So as we're able to essentially shout into the void more effectively with all of our spacecraft, we are also able to more effectively listen in from the surface of the planet. As this trade-off continues, yes, we're, we're going to continue to need these large dishes, but how do we choose to expand? And it looks like the answer is going to be, uh, building arrays of dishes instead of building the large single dishes that we built in the past. Yeah, and that was that was sort of my next question is like, you know, do we need a bigger dish? But it sounds like that's not the plan. The plan is more but smaller. And the other thing that we haven't figured out that's definitely going to affect long-term planning is what is the role of CubeSats going to be? Because a CubeSat, by its nature, is not going to be able to have um, a massive power source and a massive high-gain antenna to send data back to the Earth. And if we move to building more and more CubeSats, like the ones that we sent to Mars alongside the InSight lander, that may necessitate changing how we think about the deep space network. Um, it's it's interesting as well. I mean, even just the name, right? Deep Space Network. You imagine that it is this network out in the solar system of all of these these spacecraft that are you know sending all these communications back and forth, or like you know, but but it's all just here on Earth. Like it, the point is that it's communicating with space, with stuff that's out deep in space, and as you mentioned, not orbiting the not orbiting close to the Earth, but out the missions that are out exploring the exploring the solar system, but. But if we did want to take it to that next level um, and actually expand the infrastructure off Earth, what would be sort of what would you want to do? 
Well, so the irony of expanding the deep space network off Earth is then you have to have all of the receivers on Earth to receive the signal from the deep space network that you've now put into space. So there's a certain level of irony involved in that, which tells me, let's not do that. I, I, I think what we need in, in order to expand the capacity of the deep space network uh, is I'd like to see more redundancy in sites, more redundancy in the receivers that we're using. One of the issues that we have today is if you need to do maintenance on one of the receivers, if you want to upgrade one of your receivers, you have to take it offline, which means that there can be gaps in coverage for some of those space probes that are out there that require specific of the receivers here on Earth. So greater redundancy and greater coverage, uh, you never know when the weather is going to strike, the world is going to rumble, something's going to happen that knocks one of these facilities offline. So for me, it's, it's all about the redundancy and keeping it on Earth to, in this one case, reduce the irony. Um, now we talked briefly about some of the science that gets done using these facilities, but, I, but I wanted to sort of talk a bit about what kinds of, you know, what kinds of projects can you use this when you're not just communicating to spacecraft and you're actually using, using these dishes for astronomical science, what are some projects that they've gotten involved in? Well, as I mentioned, the the Goldstone uh, also has the capacity to be a radar. This means that when asteroids get close enough to the planet Earth, we are capable of using radar to determine their shapes. Essentially, you blast them with light, and where there's a hollow on the asteroid, it takes longer for that light to bounce back to Earth. Where there's a hill, it gets back a little bit faster, and this is one of the cooler uses. Now, in, in addition to this, they can also, of course, be used to listen to the radio waves that are coming from objects near and far, whether it be listening to Jupiter and the interactions of its magnetic field and the lightning and all the fabulous other things that generate radar, sorry, that generate radio signals from Jupiter, that's one possibility. You can also listen to active galactic nuclei in many cases. These uh, accretion disks around supermassive black holes are giving off radio light. Their jets are giving off radio light. Young stars, Titori stars, have radio emissions. All of these different sources that give off light in these longer wavelengths that are identical to the ones that your radio picks up, uh, and much longer, much, much longer as well. All of these longer wavelengths are things that these facilities have the capacity to study. And of course, there's always that capacity that we don't use all that often to go searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh was that you setting up for us to search for extraterrestrial intelligence? No, they, that's have, just have, me have, setting up to prevent all of the emails of, but you didn't say. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, they would be wonderful tools for searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, but they're busy and very rarely are they ever called on to do that. And that's why you've got the, the private yeah. antenna like the the Allen Array and things like that. And the SETI Institute is, you know, people don't, I think, realize, I mean, 
using these big radio telescopes for searching for aliens is a no-no. You have yeah. to use um, the, the SETI Institute uses private funding and and their own private radio the telescope, telescope network, array. the Allen yeah. Telescope Array, to be able to do their own their own searches. And so you don't. And I think occasionally, like a couple of times, they've they've transmitted signals out into space. And that's let the, the aliens deep space know that here. communications network, just right. to be confusing when you Google. So yeah. deep space network, DSN, is how we listen to spacecraft and sometimes ra radar image asteroids. The deep space communications network is completely separate. And that is how we send signals potentially to other life in the solar system and beyond. Yeah. And we won't uh, get into the argument on whether that's a good idea or not. It's true. Um, cool. Well, that's awesome. I uh, I'm excited. I, I it was. I'm, I'm really glad we covered this topic because it's just like it is literally like like if if this system wasn't functioning, none of the other science would be getting back to Earth. It is the bedrock that all of this stuff requires. And once you like, you just watch the Deep Space Now network now, and just watch who's communicating, and your brain starts to understand a little bit more about just where the spacecraft are in the solar it's just this orientation which i think we we lose sight of that you know the earth is spinning and the spacecraft are out there in the solar system and they're moving around and there are times when you can communicate with things and times when you can't a different and I, I love to be able to do that so so thanks for going into into this topic well and thank you for being here and thank you audience for being here and before we end, I just oh, want to take remembered. a brief – I did remember. Yeah, that's I just awesome. want to take a moment to thank some of our Patreons. Uh, we thank patrons uh, right here on air. And if you want to hear your name read out and know how grateful I am for everything that you do that lets me pay Susie. Um, before you read the names, can I yeah. just give one quick just sort of explanation why this is important? Yeah. Um. Like when you look at what's happening on the internet today, right, various people are trying to figure out business models to be able to operate what they do. You're seeing either really awful advertising or people gathering up your information on your cellular phone and then selling it, selling your, your personal privacy information. You're seeing paywalls going up, which are blocking people's access to be able to get, get information. And so you know, what are the options for us as as content creators? We want our information to, as, to be an educational resource that can get out there and be available to as many people as humanly possible. We don't want to block the information. But at the same time, as you mentioned, Mel, we want to be able to pay Susie, our editor, we want to be able to cover our hosting costs, we want to be able to pay for servers, you know, still to this day, I think, you know, you and I are still doing this on a volunteer basis. Yeah. Uh, and that is because we've chosen getting the content out there over us being able to, you know, put it behind some kind of paywall and, and, and do it. So, so Patreon is the solution that allows a small group of people to be able to fund what gets done so that the largest possible group of people can can receive the podcast without having to put it behind a paywall and without having to put a mountain of advertising on it over top of it. And the more as we can move towards it being more of a Patreon covered model, then you move into this, I think this beautiful future world where 
a small group of fans help allow a piece of content to exist to be available to a larger group of fans and it is a it is a beautiful system and we're in this sort of uncomfortable in between times where we have to have advertising or people have to start putting things behind paywalls. So I think it's just important, like even not just in generally specifically for this podcast, but for, for any content that you enjoy, where you've got a much smaller, more intimate relationship with the creators who make this kind of thing, you can support their work directly. And, and it doesn't take a lot of people to be able to make the, the content that you love available forever across all of the you know, all of the platforms and not have to put it behind paywalls and stuff. So, so again, just wherever you are, if there's things that you enjoy, consider supporting them directly. And of course, consider supporting what I do on universe today and what we do here with, with astronomy cast and what Pamela does as well. So, yeah. uh, so that, that done. Thanks to. Thanks to John Jorst, Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, Ramji Anatmatu, Andrew Palestra, David Trogue, Brian Cagle, The Giant Nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Plasma, and Emily Patterson. And there will be more names next week. Thank you all so much for being here. All right. And thanks, Pamela, for bringing the brain. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at AstronomyCast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph. <laughs>